Hi, this is Ryan Fraser. This is Troy Daly. This is Gus Boyet. This is Don Hutchison. This is Jürgen Klopp, and you're listening to The Big Interview with Graham Hunter. Thank you, Jürgen. I travel to all these interviews from Barcelona, and our socios, our beloved members, keep us on the road. This independent podcast wouldn't happen without them. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to join us, to become a socio, and to get every interview we produce without adverts and before it goes out on the main feed, plus lots of bonus content, including the chance to put questions to our guests and to me via the monthly Q&A. You will also get bonus content every month, including the audio versions of my regular columns for ESPN. So do please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and join the club and get your family and friends to do so. Maybe even strangers in the street. Love you. This, as you probably already guessed, is the big interview. I'm Graham. I'm always here, um, like an anchor in stormy seas. Today's guest is somebody I like very much, and it's not everybody who can recount their career and their life and get their character across as firmly as Robert Huth is going to do. Um, he was an exceptional competitor, um, a good footballer for Stoke, for Middlesbrough, for Leicester, for Chelsea, for Germany, and underline it, people, write it in big red letters, a double Premier League winner. He lifted the title at Chelsea and Leicester. This first part of our interview, which I would rank as easily in the top six or seven of the 105, 106 that we've done in the big interview, is a way to tell a story about a young man in Berlin There's hooliganism, there's the jailing and the oppression of free speech. There's playing football on what we in Scotland would call red blaze and leaving your skin behind in a sliding tackle. There's judo, there's humility. And there's a move to London where the description of what a vibrant, young, alert, special, special one Joseph Mourinho does in terms of inspiration, organisation and detail will take you right into the heart of the Chelsea side which dominated England during those first years of the Portuguese man of war taking over at the bridge. Robert Huth wasn't just a witness, he was a participant. He was very, very good at what he did. This is the big interview. For once, um, we're relying on the audio uh, from our Zoom recording. This being a pandemic, we still aren't face-to-face with our guests across the table. I wish we were. Safety first, not a motto I've always believed in, but it's enforced at the moment. And that means that there will be the occasional crinkle in what you hear, simply because of the airwaves getting a little bit shirty. Other than that, it's perfect sound for a perfect guest. You're really going to enjoy Robert Hoot. When you do, leave a review for the big interview. It's a way of letting other people know about it. Better still, old-fashioned, get out the uh, messenger pigeon, the tom-tom drums, or just tell people about it, okay? Message clear? Enjoy. Big interview, uh, listeners. Um, Apart from regular interviews, I don't know, 106 now or whatever it is, we try to bring you people whose 
um, character and achievements combined to make me admire them. I was lucky enough to spend a day in the presence of Robert Huth during what we like to call the summer in Britain, and it was fabulous. And for some unknown reason, he's agreed to come and talk to us. Mr H, um, I don't know what time of day in Germany, because it varies here in Spain whether you say uh, good morning or good day, so you can say buenos dias, buenas tardes, and everybody gets... So if we were in Germany, would I say uh, guten morgen or guten tag? Uh, good morgen, yeah. I'd say similar rules. Once it gets to sort of 12 o'clock, it changes to guten tag, but good morgens. As it's still 10.30 UK time, we say good morgen. It's a firm good morgen. Yeah, and uh, no, without normally you get a solid handshake with that as well, but obviously... Rules oh, along the line at the moment, so it's just a good morning. I'm going to give you a solid wink, just to yeah, that feels almost as good as a firm handshake. Fist pump, yeah, fist pump these days is no elbow. <laughs> uh, Robert, I had it in my mind um, to begin asking you about a childhood in Berlin because it's a city where I've only been fortunate to be two or three times, and it's caught my attention, and it's caught my um, enthusiasm, and even though you hadn't spent a massive amount of time in your life there, it is your roots. But we have got people who we call socios. It just means they're our members. They're wonderful people who are they're like season ticket holders and they've been with us to support the podcast. And one of them, uh, Richard Pigton, um, wrote this. Hi, Graham. Hope you're keeping well. Looking forward to this big interview. Robert is a big cult hero in the big Doug Rugby. Rugby was a player played for Aberdeen and Chelsea in the Rugby Mold down at the bridge. The home game against Charlton in 2005 was the last of the season and the trophy lift followed straight afterwards. For us, there were two highlights that day. One was Makaleli scoring his first goal from a penalty rebound. And the other was Robert tearing around the pitch in a groundsman's truck. <laughs> this is the bit I love. With various players hanging on the back for dear life. He was causing complete chaos to all of those around him. Can you ask Robert for his memories of the day and that incident, please? Yeah, many people, you know, just come up to me like, what, what got into you? But, you know, obviously we, we won the league and everyone wants like, just, you know, mega happy and all that stuff but with you know with football clubs you you tend to know all the groundsmen you know they're always at the training ground and then they work at the at the at the pitch so I always had a thought of want to drive one of these buggies you know why not and uh, as we've done all the presentation and stuff I just saw this buggy there with the keys in it and I'm thinking who's stupid enough to leave a buggy with the keys in it and I sort of knew how to drive it anyway because I had a, had a couple of goals at the training ground so just run over Obviously, got it all started, got going, and as people sort of saw me driving, they just sort of jumped on top of it. We ended up with the trophy on top of it, and the funny thing was, I think at one point, we had the groundsman chasing us. So, obviously, you know, you, you get egged on, don't you? You know, go fast, and we slowed down, and they caught up with us, and then we accelerated again, and so it was, it was a good sort of 10, 15 minutes where uh, we had a bit of fun with it, but yeah, a absolutely epic day. Was that, was that squad full of imps was it full of people who liked a laugh because it felt like I mean as a footballing unit you were well coached you were full of talent you don't achieve what you did there without those ingredients but I think the composition of the mentality of a squad varies sometimes very serious sometimes 
don't talk to each other and not that keen on each other apart from training of games. But that one felt like a, a squad full of imps, people with a little sense of life to be enjoyed. Yeah, I mean, you know yourself, when you have fun at work, it tends to be a lot better, isn't it? And you get better results. And I think that was the case. Um, I wouldn't say they were all sort of, you know, friends, but, you know, we had that sort of mutual respect where we could have a laugh, but ultimately it was still very performance driven. Um, and that sort of, it, it makes, everything makes it easier if you, if you win. You know, I've never seen a winning team being unhappy. You know, they always laugh and they always have, tell how fun it was to play in a team. It tends to just be in teams where, where you don't win. So the fundamental basis of, of sort of the fun part of, of playing for Chelsea at the time was, was winning because the second you lose, everything becomes sort of, you know, clouded down and the fun stops happening and, and people start to judge you when you laugh, when you lose, don't you? You see it all the time, you know, when, you know, when people are on a, on a losing streak, oh, why is he laughing here? Well, you know, it's still life. You can still allow to have a laugh, but fundamentally, you know, the winning, the winning that what makes it a good team, really. Um, and that's the basis of it, really. What was the what was the advantage to you? I like the phrase you use, performance driven. You were working um, for a coach who was extremely focused on that, and also did things that at the time. I know it sounds strange now, but his attention to detail and the degree of which he would um, fill your minds with preparation, which I imagine, I guess, had two purposes. It's like a Marshall McClure and the medium is the message. Apart from saying your opponent does this, your opponent does that, weak spots, positive spots, likelihood to go on this foot, that foot, blah, blah, blah. The actual process of learning about the next opponent directly and the next team is also a, a blinker method, a focus method. If it becomes repetitive, then it just keeps you really simmering rather than... Uh, and a lot of players come to... The, for example, we sat down with... Uh, Benny McCarthy and he was talking hilariously about Carvalho and saying shit trainer often sent home by Mourinho on a Monday or Tuesday I don't know what he called him I don't know if it was Shirley or whatever you're useless he said worst trainer and I've heard that worst trainer story across different clubs and cultures but they always end with Saturday Sunday somewhere from seven to nine and a half all the time focused but not everybody's like that at all are they? No, no, and I think that's the secret of of a good coach, you know. Like I'm, I'm obviously retired now, and I've not taken the coaching sort of route that sort of many ex players do, simply because I, if someone isn't the same personality as I am, I would struggle. I always have struggled with players that sort of, like you said, the ones that ch- train shit. We always end up arguing, and I couldn't get it, um, which was okay because I was playing. I was sort of within a group but if I was the leader of the group I would lose my shit you know like I, like you said send him home or find him and I, I would genuinely struggle to understand that sort of personality but yeah I mean it's all good having one player having that attitude you know like our training is not that important but ultimately if you have 10 of them you know you, sometimes you say these brilliant teams you've got that one player that you know that does a bit of magic and you let them get away with um with maybe not working as hard defensively, but you know all that stuff. It's great. I think it's there's a real sort of place for players like that. But to have five, six of them in your team, that's not going to work. You know, you need the ones that you know when you come when it gets to Monday and you analyze the game, you need the ones focus on on the uh, past mistakes, how to how to improve, how to organize yourself for the next game, and so on. And that needs to be. Uh, 
the number of that sort of players needs to be a lot higher than the ones that sort of just go go with the flow. Because um, sport, ever since I've started, you know, the, the details become smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Uh, I can only imagine what it's going to be like in 10 years' time with, with all the stuff that's out there now. Um, Gone. I, I admit that I have differing views about Arsene Wenger. And that's normal in either a human being or a high achiever, which he is, he's a high achiever. But I was, I was reading him recently um, talking about a theme you touched on there, that, that now he reckons football is kind of at the peak of physical excellence, recuperation, dietary planning. And it's kind of, I, I inter- I'm interpreting now, he, he kind of had it as if you, if you made it a, a car analogy, you, the pedal is to the floor and the needle's approaching red. And it would just generically, we're probably as far as, and he said neuroscience is going to be the next big leap forward. It's going to be about positivity or speed of reaction or who's got the greater mentality, which one, I think, m- matches with your thin margin, thin margin, and two, your little leap ahead about, I wonder what it's going to be like in 10 years, given how tightly we're focusing on details that are, I think, pushing athletes in, in your sport, I think we're treating shit. I think we're like, give me more, give me more, give me more, you're a commodity. And I, I, I worry about, in your 10-year prediction, if we don't adjust ourselves a little bit, that, that we're, we're, we're burning people up physically and mentally, or at least I think we're on that, that road. Which of those points you want to pick on is up to you, but th- th- that's honest. That's, those are honest perspectives from me. Yeah, I mean, in terms of physical, I mean, we we always have that conversation. It can't go any better. It can't get any faster. It can't be, and somehow we end up getting faster. It, you know, it's it's. A, I know what you're saying. There there has to be. Well, I don't I don't know whether there has to be, but you know, your brain and my brain sort of work maybe similar in a way. Of, it's some somewhere has to stop, isn't it? You know, you know how fast can. Adam Toro Rubi, can he? Can someone be as fast as him and still play football? I don't know, no idea. But in terms of how the game is going, you know, all the virtual reality stuff—well, not all of it, but there's quite a few stuff out there where you can, you know, the, the stuff with the goggles, where you can rewatch games and you you can put yourself in a room and you can watch yourself from a different position um, and sort of when you watch a game back or even in other games it's you can sort of watch yourself from being on a pitch to then being from up there and this gives your like you said your neuroscience a little bit of something to think about where right what's that pass the right decision or what's my positioning correct and then you got that vision where you are physically the player and then you also have lots of other different it's not like video because you get all the the head movement you're looking down so in terms of that, the, the game intelligence is gotta go, it's gotta go up. I think just by by that, you know, because if you have the ad- advantage of a position, you know, football is just about positioning. Well, not just, but it's a lot about positioning and sort of getting in between the players and blocking passes. If you have the physical um, side of it and the mental sort of intelligence, you know, it's just, uh, you know, it's just gonna go up. It feels almost. You know, going from velvet to cardboard, going back to the lower tech of what Mourinho introduced to you guys. But at that time, was it impactful um, that that you were being given so much information? And did you react positively, negatively to it? And how much did it help you? I was 18, I think, when he came. For me, it was an absolute game changer because I've gone through pre-seasons where you run the first two weeks, you don't see the ball. 
Um, you're just trying to be as fit as you can. Blah, blah, you know, you would have heard all that nonsense. So when he came in, it was complete game changer. I was not opened it all up, you know, it was specific training, uh, not wasting any, any time in training. The times he, when we didn't train, he, he said, if you don't want to train properly, just go in. We start again and he wouldn't hold it against you. But he, his sort of belief was when we train, I want you to get something out of it and I need you to get something out of it because the end goal is the, is the Premier League, the winner of the Premier League. So we can't waste time with shit training sessions or sort of, um, bad attitude or you're just going through the emotions that wasn't that wasn't allowed but for the players at the time I think the players that were a little bit older than me they got to the point where this is shit there's got to be a better sort of method preparation and when he came in I mean their eyes just lit up they went what we you know they're really and you could see for the first you know three four years they were miles ahead you know obviously it's difficult for me to say how other teams trained and prepared but you know just for defenders point of view like we had we got given sheets on a on a, on, a, on the training seat with information about the players like i love that you know that was like well that's that's the level of intensity and level of preparation you need to to have success in sport and he Mourinho obviously took that to a new level you know with with, with training it was it was always time there was there was no wasting. We had ball boys for training. Yeah, and that was, what are we now, 2004 it was. You know, normally when you do any sort of training, there was, you know, lots of time was wasted. People take a breather. The ball's over there. Everybody goes, oh, whereas if the ball's in play all the time, you're always thinking, you're always sharp. Yeah. Yeah, the, so the, that wasn't time. There was no wasted time going from different exercises. We The, the, the pitches were prepared. So you finish your possession training. And then the drinks were positioned. So on the way over to the other side of the pitch, you grab a drink and you sort of recover while you walk across to the different exercises. And that would, that, that never happened in my sort of early part of professional playing. It was just like, well, let's hang about here for five minutes while the coaches set up another drill and you lose the momentum, you lose the intensity, intensity. But yeah, I mean, yeah, he really opened it up and he sort of, um, made me realize. I mean, I was always hard working anyway, but um, he made me realize what it really takes to be to be on it. Um, and I'm glad I, I got it when I was 18 because that sort of level of preparation I sort of took took throughout my life, really, and still still to this day. I'm here to tell you about another podcast. Yes, we believe in biodiversity. It's from the makers of The Big Interview, and it's called Between the Lines, the stories behind great sports writing. Every episode takes a classic sports book or outstanding piece of sports writing and examines how the writer crafted their story. This is a weekly show, and the series so far has featured documentaries on the miracle of Castel di Sangro and Andrea Perlo's autobiography, I Think, Therefore I Play. There's also interviews with writers like Henry Winter, Simon Cooper, Andy Mitten, and David Goldblatt. This is Tim Parks on his classic tome, A Season with Verona. 
The Bishop of Verona invited the citizens of Verona to burn the book because I'd put all the blasphemies in it. So that was obviously good for sales. You know, I, I was very, very pleased about that. I wish they'd done it. It would have been a happy memory. On the Cordova, I would go to games. There would be loads of kids coming up to me saying, you know, I've never read a book before, but I really enjoyed this. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash aware. I think when you're near anybody in any professional arena that's got such intensity, preparation, has clearly thought about your role, other people's role. You watch it and first of all, your respect meter goes up a little bit. You feel more engaged. But on a separate level, um, I, I don't think he's replicated this throughout his career. But you encountered a man there who, who was very messianic. He, he had something about his his devilishness, his his wit, his, his the, the stuff that... Uh, Duffer told us about flying back from, um, I, I don't know if you were on this flight, flying back from whatever, a game to, to win in, in Russia and qualifying through the group. And Mourinho saying to everybody, they were like, boss, boss, who do you want? He went, Barcelona, I want Barcelona. He's like, yeah, yeah, we'll beat them. We'll beat them, we'll beat them. Draws Barcelona, knocks them out. Little things like that that you encounter on a daily basis. At that stage in his career, he was messianic. He kind of oozed. Uh, cleverness and confidence and a sort of elan, a, a sort of, he stood apart, not special ones yet, but he was a different kind of guy. Is that the guy you encountered and worked for? Yeah, and I mean, as much as um, as we give him credit for, for his methods, but he was, or oh, he is very intelligent, you know, like when you when you lead a, a group of men, or a, a, I'm only, I can only talk for men because that's my game, but, you know, it's you playing games like it, had he had said, "Oh, we want the shittiest team," the, the mindset of the team would have been different. So he, even if he doesn't believe it, <laughs> you know that, yeah, that yeah. they could beat Barcelona or they could beat Real Madrid, 
when you speak to the group or individuals, you, you just make make it up, even if you don't believe it. And then next thing you hear, yeah, we, yeah, we could be Barcelona. His attitude just goes for the group, and he he wasn't allowed to have any sort of dull moments or. Even when we lose, you know, it was always a fluke, you know, <laughs> or the ref or shit, or, you know, it was never, it was always stuff, well, we only lost because, not because of us, you know, it was a that mindset, you know, the constantly driven and just confidence. My, the same with my children, when they're a bit down, you know, it's always a bit, you know, just give them positivity, you know, believe in them when they have a big exam for schools or something. It's, it's very similar to that, and that's exactly what he did. It's infectious. Why do I describe football dressing rooms? I often use this metaphor, and you can tell me I'm wrong, but it's like you know having a swimming pool, a big swimming pool full of a couple of sharks, and if you just show the little bit, tiniest drop of blood, the sharks will be on you. I've always felt that with coaches and managers, that's often the predominant relationship with a dressing room. The, the really elite guys maybe have a dressing room or a squad eating out of their hand or fearing them or inspired by them for a certain time. But, you know, one man, because we're talking about the men's game, as you make the point, it, maybe it applies to women's game, maybe it doesn't, neither you or I have enough experience. But one man and a group of 24, you, 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 that one guy has to outthink the 24 all the time or spellbind them or inspire them. Or otherwise, what is it about groups of men in sporting situations that go like, he's lost it. By the way, listen, I don't think he's... You know, that happens, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean... <laughs> You know, you're following him blindly, aren't you? Because you, you, you're believing in, 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 first of all, the goal, then the process and, and whatever needs to be, be doing. And I think it's once you've got a core group of, you know, these sort of alpha males, you know, the, when you step into the training ground, it, it's work time. It is infectious for all the other players. When you have a bad day and you see everyone being pumped up, you don't really be a, that one guy that's sort of, down or you, you can't afford it like you said it's it's you're being judged every single second on on a training pitch or oh, I always felt like that anyway um so even when I had a, a couple of knocks or I had a couple of bad games or whatever I would send off or score my own goal you know on Monday morning you got to get in there and just go you know it happens but you know it goes on you, you can't sort of well in my time anyway I never sort of seeked uh reassurance anything you know always on the front foot and most change rooms are like that or the ones i played in anywhere where you know the the the, the weakness isn't allowed you know um but obviously now it's a bit different yeah we're in an era where football's trying to be more inclusive and look out for the guys who fall through the cracks and aren't just a little bit soft but are struggling and there wasn't a lot of room for that in the sport that I, that I grew to knew in the uk particularly in the uk i think when you say alpha male i think that's something that Finding that blend of how to be like that, remorseless and alpha, but also be aware that some people that are talented just aren't built that way. It's a difficult one because no one, I mean, I don't know what, how people struggle or, or anything like that, but I'd, I wouldn't know how to deal with that, if I'm honest, you know, and I wasn't probably the best teammate for people that were struggling because I was probably, or I didn't understand it. I just, I was, I was always mm. in my sort of growing up was like, just get on with it, get your head down and, and get to that place where where you can be happy. Um, but my upbringing is, or was definitely different than than people that have been brought up today. We've got sponsors. They're three six five. They 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 back us at this um, podcast, and they've asked. They've sent me a selection of questions. The one that f- feeds nicely off our chat about Mourinho was 
Bet365 asked me to ask you throughout your career, if you had to choose, with which manager did you strike up the best relationship? I'm guessing they're meeting a personal one, I'm guessing. I, I, th- I think so. Um, I, I never did. It was always professional. It was always um, get to work, do your work, um, and then any sort of social side of it or how's your kids, how's your, how's your family and all that stuff. For my, I was never interested in it. I always sort of thought he was my boss. Um, again, going up in East Berlin, like you mentioned, it was very sort of, you know, your boss is your boss. You do what you say, what he says, apologies, and you don't sort of question it. That was my upbringing. And I sort of, I, I kept with that. I didn't want to interfere with it because it was just, I always thought it would get messy. And I also would think that people would judge me if I speak to the manager outside of football. You know, it was always football-based, performance-based, uh, mistakes, uh, things that I'm well, how to improve, all that sort of stuff. It was never, should we go for a cup of coffee after training? I, I personally had no interest uh, and I've, I've, I felt uncomfortable as well because as much as it was my passion, it was also my job. Um, I just didn't, I never wanted it to be anywhere in between. You're sitting there with um, a tremendous reputation, two different title wins. Um it worked for you, but you've twice now mentioned, uh, I hope I've got it right, in Beersdorf, Beersdorf, I'm not saying that very well, actually, um, in East Berlin. And I just, for as much as it interests you, I'd really like to understand your neighbourhood, the condi- because it conditions all of us, I think. And I'm at an age now, and I've lived abroad for 20 years, where I think rather differently about the things that I wanted to escape when I was a kid in Aberdeen. And maybe that's a romanticism that you don't share. But I do want to know, for example, if you were to picture yourself now at any given age, whether it's 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and you were to try and transmit to us and and all the people listening about a sight or a sound or a smell of of growing up in your part of eastern Berlin, what would the things that would that, that are in your head and in your soul and in your consciousness and maybe the, maybe things that help shape you? I don't know. East Berlin is very sort of what well, is very concrete. Everything was just concrete. Wherever I looked was even now when we go back, it's still that the whole grey sort of. I, I was never. I never felt like I needed to escape it. Um, it was very rough. Um, it was very sort of a sort of right wing sort of place where there were loads of hooligans around. Um, not a not a lot of sort of foreign cultures. So it was very German. You know, everyone in your neighbor was German. The one down the road was German. We lived in a 20-story apartment block. I shared a room with my sister till I moved out to 16. But yeah, I mean, I, I didn't, I, I played, you know, football on gravel. Because um, all the sort of, once the war went down, all the money, the infrastructure got spent on, on, on the west side of, of Berlin. So my early part of, of training was, the, you know, the, I don't know if you know, the really sort of thin gravel. I, I, I've had several skin gravel. You grow up in Scotland, our thin gravel is red. And, and when the temperature's below Caribbean, it freezes and it's like sandpaper. So you just say goodbye to your skin. Sliding tackles, yes, but your jeans stick to you for two weeks afterwards. Are we talking the same language? That's exactly the same one, yeah. Uh, sliding in was... Was not a good idea, but yeah. So I played pretty much till I was fourteen on on, the, on these sort of pitches. Uh, training anyway in the winter because 
sometimes we were allowed to try on the grass and then we had to go when it gets too cold or too wet and too muddy we we which was often the case obviously in, in the winter months we had to play on gravel i've still got scars now like you said where it's wait 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 i can't i, I can't resist this so if you'd had um what do you call it virtual reality goggles then and the coach was saying to you right there's the ball there's the man and and look at the surface and there's so the, the audiovisual coach is saying you look at the surface robert would it have changed your idea if you saw the ball at 14 you're like you're still going in anyway aren't you i mean you just are yeah 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 you go in hard don't you because you don't feel it <laughs> but yeah i mean that was just grim but it's, it's just part of what shapes you isn't it when you when you're young and you just sort of i never looked at it no this is rubbish i just thought yeah man. This is the cart you've been dealt, um, and just get on with it. Yeah. When you talk about a rough neighbourhood, that's something that a lot of the people, definitely not all, but a lot of the people in this interview, are probably the, the farthest away was Luca Viali, who Luca grew up basically as landed gentry in, in, in a chateau in, in northern Italy. So he's probably at one extreme end. But a, a large proportion of those who've either made it as coaches or footballers in this interview series I've had something that would compare a little bit to, to what you went through. And I want to know if, if I've got it wrong or, or, or what the correlation is between it being a little bit bumpy around your streets, I don't know, for the journey to and from football or the journey to and from school, and you're opting to, to, to take up martial arts, I, th- I think judo. Was there a correlation there? And what effect did learning martial arts have on young Robert Hood? It was self-protection as much as sort of I, I wanted to do it because it's crazy because I've got two kids and I basically had to travel for an hour when I was at a young age to get to school um, by bus, walk uh, early in the morning when it's dark and, and late at night when it's dark. So that was very sort of more the protect yourself just in case something ever happens. But when you when you step into sort of a gym, it's, it's humbling because I was always well, taller than average. So I never really got into any trouble. But when you step into a gym, and you get in the ass whipped by someone who is <laughs> half the size and half your white. It's very humbling, and you're starting to respect people a lot more. Well, I did anyway. It, it gives you the confidence in, in certain situations that just in case it was ever going to escalate, you have got that skill, and I think it just breeds confidence, uh, self-assurance, um, and like I said, you, you, you respect opponents, whether they're, when, they, when you go into football, whether they're League 1, League 2, or Championship, or whatever league they're playing, or, or whatever, you, we respect because you you know you've been on the wrong side of a beating. And that's very humbling. I think it's great. I think lots of kids should do it because, <laughs> yeah, not many people are um, getting to lose these days. You know, it's a very sort of easy upbringing. You know, everything is great. Everything this or try a bit harder. You know, you just need to read school reports. I mean, my reports were like, well, he was rubbish at this, rubbish at that, decent at that. And now everything is like, well, he tries really hard and it's that sort of victim nonsense that's going on at the moment where soft soft everything's too soft for thing for people right yeah and i'm not saying being an arse or anything like that just a bit more realization where what well, it's tough yeah it's tough and you can't be good at anything you can try but the outcome is not going to be always the same someone's going to be bigger smarter better at maths better at football but you know, as long as you know about it it, it gives you a good platform Two things you mentioned there that seem to me to link. We're talking about beer stuff, and I got one more question about your growing up. But I, I feel you've inspired in me. Like one, we, we've stopped saying to people that to try and fail doesn't make you a failure because if you don't try, you don't win. 
and, and failure teaches you. So, all right, it's still sore. It's still always going to make you feel humiliated. But you, and also you used when you, I don't know if it's a judoka you stepped in, you called it the gym. You talked about humbling, about respect was the word. I think two things, really two big things. Uh, and, and I'm applying this as I think you were subconsciously to, to the generations of footballers who are coming up behind you where they probably don't have solutions because the majority of them haven't had it shitty enough to go, I've got to fall back on my own resources, my own personality. I haven't just only got to toughen up. I've got to find out ways to deal with the shit that comes my way, whether it's in life, whether it's in school or whether it's on the pitch. These are the things that you are talking about, aren't you? Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah. So, in the, the later part of sort of playing, and you, you play against the sort of academies, you know, or you, you, a training match against the under 18s or 19s, and and you watch them play, and once you take their strength away, you know, sort of, sort of, just take Leicester as an example, um, under 18s or whatever it was, 19, whatever it was, they had a really one way of playing. They've been taught that, but they coached that day in day out, and then they play against a team that goes. Well, we're going to batter your strength. We're going to take that away from you. And no one knows how to deal with that then. They all just look at each other, go on a pitch. And I was watching because I was injured. I was thinking, but no one knows how to take control of the situation now where the opponent is on top of you and they figured a way out how to stop your way. Now what? And by over teaching all these sort of, you know, this way is the right way to do it, you know, it, it limits players, it limits, it limits the upbringing. You know, you, the, I, I see it now, the young players coming through. They don't get taught. Everything is sort of so set in training and, and you know, these sort of, this needs to happen for this. Uh, and just to bring it back to judo, when you are in martial art, when you fight someone, it's the same weight, the same level of skill uh, within sort of reason. But, you know, you're at the same level. You're just going to have to figure shit out. When you go through your coaching stuff from, from the FA, I mean, they all teach the same stuff. You know, whether it's the, the BEAD or the A, a license, it's just a ticking box sort of exercise. So it doesn't really bring out anything great in coaches either. I don't know if you watch any lower leagues here. They all do the same thing now where the centre-back split and they play, the, you know, like the five-yard pass outside the six-yard box. And like, that, why? There's got to be other ways of playing football, not suggesting just lump forward. But that's what I mean. Everyone's playing um, the same sort of football. Throughout the leagues. And the reason why I think Calvin Loon at the moment is, is doing so well, because he's, he's a little bit, when I say old school, I don't mean it in a negative way, I mean it in the best positive way. He gives it to the centre-backs. And the centre-backs going, what's going on? I've got this big number nine here now who's jumping into me, chesting the ball down, running the channels. And they're like, literally, you're going, shit, I don't know what to do. And Calvin um, Lewis, he's brilliant. He gets in the box. Gets his elbow out, heads one in. Thanks very much. Rub on the head for the centre half because he's he's gone old school. He's gone. I'm physical. I'm smart. I know how to run the channels. I know how to drop deep. And I'll spin behind. He's got he got he, he's got it covered. And defenders don't know how to do with it. And he's yeah, old school in the new school way. Which for England, if that's a compliment to Harry Kane's pretty established, very different from what you've just described. And good at his job and good at finishing. His finishing is very high level. But that paints as a complementary partnership because they're extremely different, but, off, but, but both very good at what they do. Calvert-Lewin is, is going to enjoy. And, and maybe some of it is to be, to be a trip. I don't know. 
But one of the things that Ancelotti has brought to every squad that he's coached is a different mentality. He, he is notoriously good. He's, he's a very organised, qualified football coach. The thing that separates him is that he gets the best out of individuals. He designs, redesigns a system for them or he's got one-on-one coaching with them. He's a, he's a magnificent person. He's an interesting person. And, and there must be some Ancelotti effect on what you're enjoying in Calvert-Lewin, I, I suspect. Two things I want to do, and, and again, this is only if you're interested, but I, I, I was interviewing Rista Stoichkov two or three days ago. He was in Miami, Zoom like this, fascinating because he's, a, he's an intricate man who played with great skill. And, and when I was you know, a younger journalist, he was one of the key guys I wanted to watch. And I talked to him about moving from Sofia to Barcelona. And he said, he said an interesting thing. He said, on the day that I signed, I said I was the happiest man in the world, not just because I was joining Barcelona and Cruyff had signed me. I'd played against them in the Cup in Cup a year before. I'd waited for a year. I hadn't told my family that it was going to happen, in case it all went tits up. But he said, one of the reasons I said I was the happiest man in the world, he said, it was it, life in Sofia in 1988-89 was, was hard. You, you had secret police with you. Maybe not interfering in your life all the time, but following you abroad you know, on trips and if you were playing in competitions. Whatever. He said, I felt that it was a release, that the world was going to be new. I, I could actually be me when I moved to, to Barcelona in 89, 90. Did, 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 is any of that recognisable? Maybe not to you, I don't know, but to your parents. Was this, were there things that conditioned them? Because they've obviously conditioned you and your attitudes, and, and, and how you've approached young life and adult life. The, the, the things he's related about, just a, um, a sense of being mm, oppressed, watched, mm, uh, channeled by your society, which we didn't really have the same. We had it in other ways. But is, is that recognisable to you or to your parents? I mean, I was just at the end of it all. Sort of, I was born still with the world being up, obviously, Um but yeah, my parents would have done. Yeah, my my, my dad went to prison because he he got spied on and he was he was slagging off the establishment. Um, so they actually locked him away. Um, just before I was born, actually. Um, so yeah, there was always um, very what's the word I'm looking for? Authority, you know, like you don't yeah. you don't challenge, you just you do. And Germany is just about getting out of that now, where it's it's a bit more liberal, a bit more sort of openness. Um, but yeah, my part, you know, you don't, in my view, you don't sort of challenge authority. You know, they're very dictator still. Um, and it's um, certainly with a, in a, you know, a nice way of being in England, where it was a lot different. Everything was a bit more sort of open and relaxed. But of course, um, you know, you, your parents instill so much in you from what they know or what they thought was right or wrong. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I've got, uh, when you think of all these German traits, I've probably still got 100% of all of it. Thank you for listening to The Big Interview. It's produced by me, which sounds egotistical, but it's also true, Graham Hunter. And back page. Our music is by Beer Jacket, who else? Editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at ACAST and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us 
at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here endeth the lesson.